wanted people to worship him and demanded that all the people in the empire should worship him. But the Jews got a special out because they kind of understood, well, they're the Jews and they kind of worship one God and they can't do this emperor worship thing. So the Jews had got a special exemption. But the Christians, the Christians in the early first century were seen as a Jewish sect. And the Jews didn't like the fact that the Christians were kind of emerging and multiplying. And so it looks like what was happening was that the Jews were shopping the Christians to the Romans. They were saying they're not really Jews, you know. They're a bit, bit Jewish stuff. You know, they follow a Jewish Messiah, but they're not Jews anymore. So get after them. They are not part of the exemption from Roman emperor worship. Now, this could explain why Jesus describes the synagogue as a synagogue of Satan. He says, they're actually fighting me. So, Jesus knows all about their suffering. He knows what they're going through. He knows that they feel really poor and they're really under pressure. Although, he does tell them that you're rich, which is kind of interesting. Is it that the poorer we are, the richer we are, actually, because we have all the treasures of heaven at our disposal. And the richer we are, the poorer we are, actually, because we have the temptation to depend on all that wealth and miss out on real wealth. Anyway, but the surprising thing about Jesus' message to a suffering church that's been through hard times is what comes next. He says, don't be afraid of, about, of what you are about to suffer. Oh, what? That, we didn't expect that. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a message here? I know you've suffered a lot. Now I'm going to comfort you. Now I'm going to give you a nice heart. Yeah, it's all going to get better. Not what Jesus says. What Jesus says is you're going to suffer. And it gets worse. Look at the next slide. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Hey, did, didn't we sign up for the gospel because it was good news? And here's Jesus addressing his church and saying, actually, struggle is coming. His instruction to them is to be faithful even to the point of death and that he will give them a victor's crown. I sometimes think our experience of the reality of life as followers of Jesus is incredibly privileged and incredibly limited. See, the reality of the church in the first century was that persecution was it. And actually, the reality of the church in the 20th century and moving into the 21st century is that persecution and suffering and struggle are it. It is only in this very limited Western bubble that we have the privilege of living in that the church has not experienced this kind of struggle. We're the odd ones out here, friends. And you only have to travel to discover that the church in other parts of the world 
is under heavy pressure. We were in Nepal recently. We spent some time with uh, one of the leaders of Himalayan life. Two weeks after we were uh, back, he was denounced to the authorities and arrested on a completely trumped up charge, which everyone knows is a completely trumped up charge. And he is going through it for the sake of the gospel. Not because he's a bad guy, but because there are forces out there that are opposed to Christianity in Nepal. Sobering, very sobering. It's interesting as we look at this letter to Smyrna that Jesus has no words of rebuke for the church in Smyrna. The suffering they're experiencing is not because they're doing something wrong. It comes because they're doing something right. They are living out their faith and experiencing the heavy pressure that comes because the kingdom of God is in conflict with the kingdom of this world. Jesus encourages them that those who are victorious, which I think here means remaining faithful, no matter what the pressure, not renouncing the faith, hanging on, even if they get shoved in jail, even if they get threatened with death, even if they get killed, hang in there, hold on to it, because they won't be hurt by the second death. By, by which I think he means the separation from God that comes for those who reject Christ's kingdom. So it's serious. It's a serious letter. But hopefully encouraging too. The persecution's only going to be a 10-day intense fire. Jesus tells them that. Can you hang on for 10 days, says Jesus? I think that's part of the encouragement of the letter. So that's Smyrna. What about Pergamum? A little further round on the circuit. What do we know about Pergamum? Well, Pergamum, as the capital city of the province of Asia, had been given the right of the sword, or as we would know it, the right to execute people. This is perhaps why the letter begins and ends with reference to Jesus as the one who has the double-edged sword. Remember in the vision, John sees the risen and exalted Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth, like his tongue as a sword, double-edged, sharp. And here, Jesus emphasizes his right to use the sword uh, as he comes to Pergamum. Pergamum was a city known for its magnificent temples, one was dedicated to the worship of Caesar as part of the Roman emperor cult. There was another one for Zeus. And there was another one dedicated to the worship of a god called Asclepios, who was famed as the god of healing and whose symbol was the snake. And guess what? In his temple, they had a load of tame snakes. And the deal was you would go up and you would sleep in the temple and you would hope that in the night one of the snakes would come creeping up and slide over you. And it was believed that if that happened, some of you are looking a little nervous at that point. Rhonda, I, not, not big on the snakes I'm hearing. But the hope was if you got touched by a snake, you get healed. Okay. So, 
this fact, all these temples, all this weird stuff going on, and the reality that the snake is so often the symbol of Satan. This perhaps is why Jesus describes the city as the place where Satan has his throne. So Jesus knows exactly where they live, and he knows that this is a community that are holding fast to their faith in him, even when the fires of persecution burned so hot that they consumed Antipas, who Jesus describes as his faithful witness. Who was Antipas? Well, tradition has it that Antipas was ordained bishop of Pergamum by the apostle John. John, who's having the vision, and was martyred during the reign of the emperor Nero for casting out demons revered by the local populace. He was actually burned in a burnished bull. Uh, horrible way to go. Antipas, a martyr for the faith, a leader of the church in Pergamum. So Jesus knows that the church in Pergamum has been through the fire and have held on to the faith. They've had a good grip on it. But here's the word of admonishment. He's not all that happy about all that's going on in the church in Pergamum. While they're doing well in the face of the external pressure and persecution, it seems that there's an unhealthy strand of teaching being accepted and advocated by some who belong to the church. The teaching is identified with Balaam. Now, Balaam may ring a bell for some of you. He was that strange non-Israelite prophet who operated in the book of Numbers. And he was hired to curse Israel and ended up blessing Israel. But there is a story that he apparently encouraged the women of Midian to seduce the Israelites. And there was a, uh, an interaction there uh, for which he eventually got killed. But the teaching that Balaam advocated, Jesus links that to the, what's going on in the church in Pergamum. And it seems to revolve around two key issues. The first one seems to have been around food sacrifice to idols. Now, in the first century, this was a hot potato because most food was sacrificed, meat particularly, to the various gods, and then after it had been sacrificed, it was sold in the marketplace. And there was a big issue for the church about whether or not it was okay to go buy meat that you knew was kind of polluted, in a sense, by its offering to false gods. And the general feeling in the church was it was better not to eat that meat than to get defiled by it. But some, and apparently they were in the church in Pergamum, were saying, well, those idols, they're nothing. Let's just ignore that. Nothing wrong with meat, we'll eat it anyway. Give us a good burger. Right? I mean, that was the thinking, I think. Uh, anyway, that seems to be part of the, the issue, and that was a challenge. The other issue uh, at Pergamum was apparently around condoning sexual immorality. 
Now, we don't know the line of argument here exactly, but we do know that Greek thinking often divided between the reality of the flesh, the kind of here and now, the present, and the soul, and tried to divide them out and say, oh, the soul's really important, the body doesn't matter. And of course, you can see quickly how that would translate. So people would say, well, it doesn't really matter what you do in your body because your soul is what's really important. So if you go and hook up with a prostitute, if you go and have sex with somebody who's not your wife, it's not a big deal. Your soul matters. You're spiritual now. And those kinds of ideas had crept their way into the church. And Jesus, who knows and sees, is not pleased. He also references the teaching of the Nicolaitans. No one really knows who they were or what they were teaching, but clearly they were on the false side of the, the teaching equation, and Jesus didn't like what they were up to either. But false teaching was working its way into the church, and false practice was coming out of that. And Jesus identifies it, calls it for what it is, and calls them to repent. One of the things about the Holy Spirit in line with Jesus is that when there's stuff going wrong in our lives, He doesn't put a kind of generalized, like, oh, it's not good, oh, on us. He tends to cut to the heart of it and give us a way back. And the way back scripturally is this word, repent. Repent is to pay attention and turn round and stop doing what you were doing, come back to God, admit that what you're doing is wrong, and ask for His grace and forgiveness in order to start going right. And Jesus encourages that. He wants us to cooperate with him in that process. Repentance is good news. It's the way out of the blind alleys we weave into in our humanness and folly and short-sightedness and weakness. And so Jesus calls to the church in Pergamum and he says, hey, I don't like what's going on there. Repent. Turn it around. Come back to me. I want to forgive you, but you've got to cooperate in this. You've got to do something. Repenting is your job. I hear this, and I wonder how many of us need to hear this word about repentance particularly. It's a key word. It's a key concept, and in our spiritual lives, it's very easy to find that we have wandered from God's path, and we're out there in the swamps, and we wonder how we got there, and we suddenly wake up, and we realize that we don't have our first love anymore, and we're a little bit lost. The answer for all of us is to repent. Go back, find our way back 
to God's gracious and welcoming arms. He wants that for us. Jesus warns them that if they don't repent, he will come to them and he'll use that sword and it'll be painful because people will be excised, I think, from the body of Christ by his use of that sword. The final word to the church in Pergamum from Jesus is a word of encouragement to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To those who overcome, there is promised the hidden manna. And what's the hidden manna? Well, you remember manna? Manna was what uh, God provided for the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert. It was a kind of um, white substance that came down all across the desert. They could gather it. They could eat it. Uh, It wasn't meat. And it may be that some of these people were feeling a bit sorry for themselves that they couldn't eat the meat that was for sale in the marketplace. So Jesus says, hey, you know what? There's more to life than meat. Here, hidden manna, it's coming for you. And then he also offers them the white stone with his name, with a new name uh, engraved on it. Lots of commentators have wrestled with what the white stone means. There are many different answers uh, which suggest to me that probably nobody really knows. Uh, I don't know. Probably you don't know either. But anyway, it sounds pretty good. Jesus is going to give you a nice rock painted, and, and there's a name on it that's just for you, and he knows about that. Nice. Okay, don't worry about the details here. Two letters, two different historic contexts in the first century. What are we supposed to do with them? Well, I think there are a few things that we can take from them this morning. First is, they remind us that the living Jesus is Lord of the church, and He knows exactly what is going on. That's not supposed to be threatening. That's supposed to be encouraging. He is close to His church. There's nothing hidden that He doesn't know about. There's nothing He doesn't see. He knows Granville Chapel. He sees the areas of strength and the areas of commitment, the good things that are happening, and he likes those things. He also sees the areas of weakness, the faithlessness, the false teaching, the places where we need to repent. And I think this morning, part of our challenge is to ask ourselves as a community, So, Lord, what are you saying to our church? What are you, by your Spirit, saying to us? Is it that everything is fine? Curiously, most of these churches have issues. I've actually never met a church without issues. I don't think Granville is a church without issues. How many times have I stood up here and said, if you're a visitor here, Welcome to Granville Chapel. Don't be too impressed. We are a community of broken people that God is in the process of changing and transforming. If you are broken, you are welcome to join us. If you have it all together, look elsewhere. 
right? Because we know ourselves. And I know you, and you know me, right? Cuts both ways. We know what we're like. So would Jesus have for us just a rubbing of our back and say, oh, you great guys? I don't think so. I think he'd be much more discerning and is much more discerning about us. And perhaps there are areas in our lives that he would finger and he would say, you know, when you're doing that, that's not right. You need to repent. You need to come back to me. I don't want to lose you. But if you carry on on that path, I will. So I think that's the kind of way that we have to read these letters and wonder and ask. Maybe as community groups, that's a question we could ask. What do you think the Spirit is saying to Granville Chapel? I'd be interested to hear what you, what you think. I'm sure there are things that God has for us as community. So may we, as a community, be those that hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and do what the Spirit tells us to do. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for these historic letters that address real people in real situations, in real contexts in the first century. But Lord, they remind us that you are the greater reality and that you are real and alive and that you see and you know your churches. Lord, we're one of your churches, one of many churches. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us that you would show us the places where we need to turn back to you, that you would show us uh, how you want us to proceed, and that you would encourage us to stand up for your truth, no matter what the cost, in a context that is unusual but specific, and in a context where you have a desire to build your church and where you promise us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the founding and establishment and victory of your church. Help us, we pray, to be those who listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just invite you now to uh, focus our hearts and minds on the communion table. We're reminded as we look at Revelation of the fact that Jesus is alive. And as we come to the communion table, we celebrate what he did for us in coming and dying for us. When we come to the communion table, we remember that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus offers forgiveness and new life for all who will come to him.
The scripture reminds us the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is what we're celebrating today, that he did die, but he rose again and he is alive and he is coming back. We do it in remembrance of him, remembering he is coming back one day and he is alive now. So at Granville Chapel, we welcome all followers of Jesus who who believe Jesus has done that to take this communion. If you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you believe that, please join in. If this is something that even this morning you have had your heart open to, please come and join us. This is a family meal that we celebrate together. And... um, it's a, since it's a community meal, a family meal, we're going to offer it to the person next to us by saying this is the body of Christ, broken for you. And the words are up here in case you forget. And um, when the cup comes by, this is the blood of Christ shed for your sins. This is a powerful reminder as we speak it and say it to each other. And if you have a dietary restriction, there is a gluten-free product on the bread for you. So as the ushers come forward, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the first and the last. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You came here, Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords, and wrapped yourself in humanity and died on a cross for us. Lord, how can we ever, ever thank you for that? And Lord, you in the book of Revelation reveal to John that you are the living one, that you are forever, ever alive, and that you hold the keys of death and Hades in your hand, that, Lord, you have conquered death for us. And so we say to you, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for your new life that you give to us, Lord. Today, as we take this bread and this cup that is a vivid reminder of what you did for us, would you open our hearts and minds to this in a new way? Would you help us to see the reality that you are here among us, that you, if we could only see you, our eyes would be open to the incredible beauty, the incredible majesty of you, our King, that you care about every aspect of our lives, Lord. And so as we take this communion, remind us, Lord, of who you are and that you care about us and that you want us to have strength for today, Lord. And uh, just we say all this, Lord, we say thank you. Thank you, our Alpha. Thank you, our Omega. And we say it in Jesus' name, amen.